0: For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor his deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You were continuously straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls, the word of the Lord. Well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. Good to have you all here with us today. Uh, we are in the middle of a series uh, called "Faith, Hope and Love," and we're looking at the book of First Peter. The key idea in this passage this morning is the idea of Jesus' suffering for us. But not just any kind of suffering, uh, but a suffering that is absorbent in nature. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about love as absorbent. uh, But more and more, I'm seeing how so many people all around me are loving me by suffering for me in their absorbency. Uh, And when they do this, what it does is it buys time uh, for me to go through a process so I can go through whatever it is I need to go through to reach an understanding and become mature as a person. And if they were not absorbent, Uh, then uh, I would experience the consequences of my uh, falling short immediately. And they would either hurt me or hurt them or uh, break the relationship. And so when people are absorbing around me, it allows sin and my immaturity to come to its own fullness, for it to manifest for what it is. And seeing clearly what it is, we can together deal with it without hurting each other, or breaking the relationship Uh, In the passage that Miles read for us today, what we see is that in the world, suffering tends to be sort of rampant with sinfulness. It's full of deceit is the word they use. There's reviling and reviling in return. There are threats that are uttered. There's an inability to trust in a righteous judge. So we take judging and uh, justice into our own hands to make sure that justice justice is meted out. And in contrast, we see the love of God in Jesus. And we see that he is a faithful, righteous, and true guardian and shepherd of our souls who suffers and dies for us. And the particular way that he does that is by being absorbent in our lives. Now, when I compare sort of uh, the world being rampant with reviling and reviling in return and I reflect on these truths presented to us about the absorbency of God's love in Christ, I realize there aren't many people like this in my life. Uh, The first group of people that do come to my mind that most remind me of an absorbent love is a mom's love. Not just in my mom or not just in my wife. Uh, mother of my children, but also just as a category. Moms all around the world. I see this very particular divine trait that is embodied in them, and I want to honor them in that today. Now, uh, right off the bat, I want to point out that, you know, when I was a kid, I just had my mom. And that was the extent of my understanding of what a mom was. Just me and my mom. Uh, But as I've grown older... Uh, I realized sort of how complicated life and even something like Mother's Day can be. You know, there are some of us uh, who um, long to have a mom, or some of us who have lost a mom, or some of us who are not moms anymore. And so there are many, many scenarios in which uh, Mother's Day might add a complexity to how you emotionally navigate this day. So I acknowledge that, but I also invite you to sort of think uh, categorically about moms in general and sort of honor and appreciate moms uh, together today. Two points I want us to uh, think about the first is the absorbing nature of God's love, and then the second is the healing nature of God's love. Ready? First, absorption. Start at verse 22. It says, Who committed no sin? That's talking about Jesus. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And then verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, for by his wounds you were healed. You notice there's a very specific uh, category that explains these words, and that category is the language of absorption. What Peter is trying to communicate to us is that Jesus didn't resort to our level. We did things to him, and Jesus didn't do it back to us. In other words, he didn't retaliate. But rather, he absorbed our sinfulness into his own body. Now, I, as a a preacher and um, theologian, I think about this. What does it mean that Jesus absorbed sin into his body? That he who knew no sin became sin for us one way to understand it, i think and that's what peter's getting at here is when there is an innocent person and you do all sorts of wrong against an innocent person then rather than just the wounds on the innocent person what you also see and maybe more see is your own sinfulness on this very innocent canvas It's not obscured by their sinfulness or ways that they're contributing to the equation. But what you see is your sinfulness because that's all there is. They're innocent. And so this is what we see made manifest in Christ, especially made visible on the cross. His wounds, yes, they were wounds and they were physical, tangible things, but also symbolically displayed what we could not help but do to an innocent person. Therefore, by our actions displayed on his innocent frame, we're able to see how truly, utterly sinful we are. In his absorbing of our sin, especially onto his physical body, we can then see that we truly are sinful. And when he did that, What it did for us is as he was absorbing it into his body, it bought us time. The scriptures talk about this aspect of God's love for us again and again and again. It talks about how God allows the weed and the tares to grow up together. Because if God were to decide right now, I want to take out all the tares, I want to take out all the weeds in this field, then by virtue of that act, All of the good and the bad would have to be destroyed together. So the scripture says, in the fullness of time. In another place, the apostle Paul talks about how sin is made manifest so we can see that it's utterly sinful. Elsewhere, Paul talks about sin being revealed for what it truly is. Can you imagine in your relationships, If every single time you were less than perfect, either by commission or omission, you said something or you didn't say something, or you said it, but you said it with a tone, or you didn't have the right tone that you needed to have. Imagine every time you made a mistake, every single person that was affected by your mistake came to you and began to confront you directly about ways that you are falling short right this instant. What would happen to you and what would happen to that relationship? You would be crushed. The Bible says that if we were to see God, we would die. Why? Why would seeing God kill us? I think part of it is that He is light. And if that kind of light were to be shed on me, there is no way I can bear up under that kind of scrutiny, that kind of exposure. Even just one person saying to me, "Hey Peter, you have time this week? I want to talk to you." You know what the first thought is? What did I do? Am I in trouble? Maybe I should have said, maybe I said it wrong? What did I say last week? I don't remember. Just one person. And 99% of the time, it has nothing to do with me. But that 1% gives me enough fear because I know I'm guilty even if they realize it or not. Imagine every single person in your life, their job, 24-7, were to point out to you what's wrong with you. And then you begin to realize that you are so desperately needy for absorption, you need people who love you enough to buy you time for process and maturity and understanding that you need to go through whatever it is you need to go through. You need the sin in your life to take its course and be made manifest to both you and those who love you in a timely manner so that you can deal with it together without killing each other or breaking the relationship. And for that to happen, somebody has to absorb your sin. Otherwise, there's immediate what the Bible calls death. In the garden, God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit, the day you eat it, surely you will die. Because we can't withstand the weight of sin reflected back to us. It's just too much. Somebody needs to stand And stay and absorb. Who's going to do it? Who is to absorb the sin in our life? I thought of uh, many people who have done this in my life. Uh, One particular person that came to mind first was my InterVarsity staff worker when I was in college. Uh, InterVarsity is a Christian group that I was a part of on campus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And he's still a staff worker there. But for four years, I made his life miserable. I was a miserable soul in many ways, a tortured, restless soul. And I brought all of my grievances about self and life onto this guy. And I decided on some deep subconscious level that he was going to be my scapegoat. And so every chance I got, I talked to him about his flaws and ways that he was failing as a person, as a Christian, and as a leader. That's fun times. You could imagine he looked forward to meetings with me. Yeah. But I began to realize uh, after I had graduated that I was an absolute jerk to this guy and that those issues I brought up with him were really more about me. You know, the thing about finding scapegoats in our life is nobody's perfect. So if you wanted to destroy somebody just by the facts of sinfulness on their part, you can but in reality, emotionally, you're driven by other forces. And we use the evidence that's plenty a plenty to crucify people all around us, don't we? So that's what I was doing with uh, Mr. Dave Collins. And so about a, uh, a few months into our marriage, when I was coming, into, coming to increasing uh, awareness of my own uh, shortcomings... I decided to write Dave Collins a letter and I listed out all the ways that I just was a jerk and I apologized for making his life miserable. But the thing that crushed me was all that time, all those four years I realized he had been absorbing me. And the real kicker was at some point senior year, he sat me down and right as I was about to go at him, he said, Peter, what do you want from me? Say anything, and I'll do it for you. I'll give it to you. Whatever you want me to be, just let me go. Just leave me alone, please. And I realized I was the jerk. He was absorbent of me for four years. He gave me time to process Another person that comes to mind is another Dave, David Swaim, who is a senior pastor at High Rock, which is a church I was at in Boston. Uh, After 13 months of planting the church, uh, we hired Dave Swaim to come on in, and we partnered together for three and a half years. And we were 20-something sort of going at it. We did not know what we were doing. The church was growing. We were having a lot of fun, but we were killing each other in the process. And now we make it a point. Every time we get together, we have this post-mortem sort of retrospective on how things happened and why things happened and ways that we have hurt each other and ways that we got lucky. And we just love to sort of talk about the past and process together. And inevitably, we end up apologizing to each other about something. Hey, Dave, remember that time? Yeah, Peter, remember that time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember it. Can't forget it. I still think about it. Well, I'm really sorry about that. And it takes years for us to have new apologies, but we always do. And we are able to because we haven't killed each other, we haven't broken the relationship because there's absorbency in the relationship without which we, as a Friendship would not exist. Of course, another one that came to mind is Susie. Uh, Just regularly we have these retrospectives about, uh, you know, uh, how we're doing as a couple and uh, different things that we come to realize much later on after the fact. And then we realize, wow, you've been just dealing with that all this time? And truth be told, it's mostly her dealing with me all this time. You know, we were out with a couple last night, and they asked us about the first year of marriage. They said, was it hard? He said, well, we didn't really know it at the time. But looking back, yeah, it was really, really hard. And we realized we're still forgiving each other for that time. But in the meantime, we're fine. We're relating to each other. We're loving each other because we're absorbent with each other. Regularly, I have check-ins with many friends. And when we do, even with the same friends, I have new apologies for them. And I have revelation on new how they are absorbent of who I am and how I am and my ways and my tics and quirks and personalities and blind spots and areas I'm just unaware of presently. But I am months later, years later. Why is that possible? Because of absorbency. You know, in fact, even with this church, I'm, I'm here almost three years now. Uh, September will be three, starting our fourth year. I can't even believe that. But we, we already have retrospective conversations about the first couple of years here at the church. And sometimes I just cringe at the ways that I was. It was just not long ago. That means I'm doing things right now that I'm, I'm going to cringe about later. And you know why that's possible? Because you are absorbent of me. You know, one particular example I thought of uh, was when I first came, there was this communion table in the front of the church. And for some reason, I had it in my mind to symbolically, we, to revitalize as a church, we have to get rid of this table. And I went for it. How come nobody's laughing? It's, not, it's too soon still, right? Why did I stake my life on that table? Why was that the hill I had to die on? I don't know. I'm an impatient man. And yet here I stand still because you are absorbent. I want you to understand, appreciate the absolute necessity of absorption in a relationship. Whether you are aware of it or not, there are countless people absorbing your fallenness every moment of every day. You fall short, you hurt feelings, you're unaware, and they absorb you, buying you time and process, without which there is no future possible. Second, healing. Now, uh, verse 21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also, and see what I have underlined for us, suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. A question I ask is, well, how is he uh, suffering for me? How is his suffering, uh, the word theological word is efficacious. How is it effective for me? What does it do for me? Why is it relevant to me? And theologians have an answer for this, and that answer is what they call, as a category, atonement theories. Different metaphors they use to explain how the suffering and death of Christ is practically effective and helpful in our lives. That without his suffering and death on the cross, we don't have the hope and future we have today. That there is a before Christ and an after Christ. And what they have landed on as sort of the underlying thinking underneath all of the atonement theories is what they call substitutionary atonement. He didn't just suffer. He suffered for us in our stead. He took on our suffering. He died the death we should have uh, We should have died and he lived the life we should have lived. And the way that we think about that is he's not just an example, but he's actually a hero. You know, if Superman were to swoop in and save the day and he flies away after he saves your life, you don't say, wow, what a great example. I like to do the same. No, you say, thank you. Because he did something for you, not so that you would imitate him, but so that you would appreciate him. He wasn't just an example, but a hero. He was an example in that he was loving, but he wasn't an example for you in that you can do the saving, because that job description is something that only a hero can fulfill. He did what we could not do for ourselves. And so when people, other people around us suffer and absorb us, they're not doing what Jesus alone did. So there's three ways I want to spell out for you the uniqueness of the uh, suffering of Jesus Christ, the way that only Jesus can uh, execute for us, okay? Number one is Jesus suffered necessarily, he didn't just suffer. The scripture says, he, in fact, Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected from the dead, he taught his disciples that he had to suffer and die. It wasn't like there was another way. It was absolutely necessary. A way to think about this is I'm going to use a Keller, Tim Keller example. Keller says, Mary loves John, and they're having a great date. They just finished the picnic, and they're walking along the countryside, and their are train tracks. And a train comes along, and uh, right before the train reaches them, John says to Mary, Mary, I love you so much. And then jumps in front of the train and dies. Now, that's a horrible story. And it's a bad story because John didn't need to die. Was Mary in front of the train? Was he uh, pushing her out of the way, and in her stead, he died? No, he died absolutely unnecessarily. Mary isn't touched by this gesture. She thinks he's crazy. John, what was that? Why did you do that? Why would you die? Your suffering wasn't necessary. You didn't need to absorb anything onto yourself. Here I am without a relationship. Jesus suffered necessarily. He Did something that only he can do. And part of the Christian message is Jesus suffered for every single person on earth, past, present, and future. The suffering that we undergo is not necessary for salvation. In fact, Peter in a um, previous chapter pointed out that sometimes we suffer because we make mistakes, we're at fault. And sometimes we suffer because other people are at fault. It's just suffering happening in a broken world. But all of that suffering doesn't amount to salvation. Yet Jesus' suffering saves us. That's number one. Number two, when we absorb each other's sin we may say, wow, that's really great. This so-and-so is such an absorbent person. They're so loving. They're kind. But if you were to scrutinize their psyche and delve into what's really happening with their family of origin issues and all of that, then you begin to realize, well, their absorbency isn't all that selfless. When Jesus absorbs our sinfulness. He suffers for us. He's not doing it for himself. He's doing it, Peter says, for us. He has our good in mind. He has the kind of wisdom and surgical competence to be able to suffer for us. His suffering is actually doing something good in our life. He's not suffering for himself. For example, uh if we were to scrutinize a human being's absorbency, we may realize that this person is actually uh, um, an es- escapist. They don't want to face reality. They don't want to deal with what's happening. So they just suffer. They're just escaping reality. Or maybe they're passive. You know, they, they are uh, passive-aggressive, and they're just sort of collecting your sinfulness. And then one day when you cut them deep enough... Then they're going to explode on you about how they've been doing all of this for you, and how can you betray them? You know, I know many Christians like this who go to church for years and years, and finally God doesn't quote unquote give them what he th- what they thought he was going to give, and he says, "How could you do this to me, God?" It's like when did you put God in debt? I thought you were doing it for your, you know, own act of worship and good for your soul. Oh, I didn't realize it was a transaction that was happening. Or maybe a person is it because they're just incompetent. They don't know how to face, navigate the emotional stress of confrontation. So they just stay quiet. Or maybe they suffer and are absorbing because they're self-justifying. They want to feel like a martyr. They want to raise their own opinion of themselves. Who knows why we suffer for each other? But really, if you, I think every single person, if we were to scrutinize them, we would come to see it's more complicated than just selflessness. And yet Jesus alone, alone suffers for us. Third is that Jesus suffers onto life and not onto death. What that means is if you and I were to suffer for each other, it would lead to death. We can't absorb all of the suffering that the world has for us to take. There is an unlimited supply that exceeds our strength or our lifetime. There is no way we can effectively absorb all of the suffering in the world. We would simply die. And there would be no relationship. But the way Jesus dies... The way he suffers and absorbs is not onto death but onto life. He took on our sinfulness. All of our sinfulness started culminating towards the Christ. And it was revealed as utterly sinful and ugly. And our darkness was made manifest onto him. And he took it and he absorbed it. And then he defeated death and he was raised from the dead so that... After he does all of this perfect absorbing, he can then be in relationship with us, which is the very resource we need to live life. But if he had just simply sacrificed himself and then he is no more, then we're just left with principles that we have to now be able to apply to ourselves. But rather we have a person who continues to be our hero. I love truths and I love principles. I think about them all the time. I love wisdom. But if there is no person behind it, then now it's still on my shoulders. I still have to be competent and consistent enough to be able to apply these principles. It's mental games I have to play all day. Peter, remember this. Do this. Don't do that. Think about this. And how can I save myself? The whole problem was I couldn't save myself in the first place. And then Jesus comes, and then he gives me all these great principles, and then he's gone, and now I have to be my own hero? That's not salvation. That's not hope. He suffered unto life, not unto death. This is the uniqueness of the Christ's suffering, the Messiah's suffering. And in verse 21, it says, For you have been called for this purpose, since also Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Jesus suffered for us to preserve us. He didn't destroy us in the process. To heal us, to cause us to mature, to be made fully into the image of Christ in which we were made, and to be in relationship with him. So what does it mean then, if Jesus is a hero and not an example, Peter says, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And what that means is he's inviting us to engage in suffering in this world, but not as a way to save the world. Because remember, that's not our job. Go ahead, take on somebody's life, just one person's life. Make them your responsibility. Write me back in 20 years and tell me how that went. Try it. Just one person. Pick a little one. They're lighter. Take, take them on. Try it. It will implode before you can finish your first sentence about victory. In our suffering, we are invited not to save each other, not to be responsible, not to be the hero, but to experience our own salvation as we engage in the suffering of the world. Our suffering, the suffering that we partake in, is a way for us to experience the salvation of Jesus in our life. He uses the suffering to save us. That's it. Don't ever think you're doing anybody a favor in your absorption. When you are able to love each other, love the other person, you're doing it for yourself ultimately because that is how God uses it in your life primarily. So that all debt is paid not to you but to God who alone deserves the glory. He alone is competent and wise and surgically precise enough to save us. And he does it through us. So release each other. We are not each other's saviors. All of the absorbency we do is for our own good. So that we can give God the glory. I want to uh, begin concluding here. As I thought about this absorbing, enduring, redeeming, saving, suffering uh, of Christ uh, and Mother's Day was coming, I began to realize that really, if I think about it, this love of Christ is most exemplified in a mother's love. There's just some thoughts I had about that. Number one, I think uh, mother's love is probably the love with which we are the most presumptuous. We assume a mother's love uh, that even we don't assume a father's love. There is something about a mother whose disposition, sometimes whose very existence seems to be for us. And I really, really appreciate that that there's an unconditionality to a mother's love that is unique to a mom, that is reflective of the unconditionality of Christ. Second, because of that, there's a way that I am least cautious with a mom's love. And sometimes it uh, very much dips into a disrespectfulness that I can be, or others can be, towards moms. I think that's uh, a sinful, fallen world's way of experiencing safety. When we really feel safe in somebody's love, we can be uh, not only presumptuous, but even disrespectful. But I think in a perfect world, that really is an expression of safety. Um, third way that I think about mom's love is um, moms are thinking about many things on many levels at the same time. I think others often have the luxury of Uh, being focused and having blinders on and just doing their thing. But moms tend to be thinking about many things in everybody. They feel very connected to supporting and loving uh, all of us at different levels at the same time. And I really appreciate that about a mom's love. I think sometimes a mom's love uh, is better than my own love for myself. And moms see things about what's good and what's right and what needs to happen long before others do. And yet, in that knowledge, they remain patient and they remain engaged in the process of uh, your discovery and my discovery. And so I appreciate that about moms. I can say that she absorbs me and us by buying time for process to take place. All along, building the relationship, offering herself up as an emotional and practical resource to meet us exactly where we're at. In other words, she is a shepherd and guardian of our souls. And I really appreciate that about moms. Moms absorb a thousand little arrows a day, or maybe a few giant blows in difficult seasons but she intuitively understands the cruciform nature of what it takes to love and walk alongside people in her life. One application for today is I want to invite you to consider the very unique uh, suffering and absorbent nature of Jesus' love, yes, But I invite you to do that through moms today. Just think about moms and how they so uh, beautifully reflect, embody the love of God in Christ. And I really do believe God has given us mothers as a way to help us experience and understand this absorbent side of God's love. I want to say one story about my own mom uh, who is visiting today uh, for Mother's Day and uh, this is one I think I've told before, but it's funny, and I like telling it. Uh, but uh, when I was uh, in middle school, uh, I decided I wanted to be a doctor. And then in high school, I decided I want to be an ophthalmologist. I don't know exactly why, but I became obsessed with the human eye, and I did some uh, extensive papers and research on it. And I went to college as a bio major, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, to be a doctor, uh simultaneously though there i began to experience uh my own spiritual hunger and i met this uh preacher we called him preacher mike and i through his ministry i began to feel what later i would come to call a sense of call to ministry and uh this call to ministry began to grow in me and began to take shape and uh, by senior year, I decided I was going to be a pastor rather than a doctor. And so uh, before I went home for Christmas break my senior year, I called my mom to sort of soften the blow and pre-deliver this news over the phone instead of in person. Called her and I said, Mom, I'm coming home on this day and I want you to know I've decided that God is calling me to be a pastor. So I'm going to go to seminary instead of medical school. And uh, she said, uh, you're not my son, don't come home. <laughs> and hung up on me. <laughs> and this only makes sense as a loving gesture of a mother, if you know my mom. <laughs> and so I went to, back to New York, and I went to my sister's house. And I stayed there the first night, and I guess my mom and my sister had been plodding behind my back. And uh, my sister, the second night... After we had finished talking and hanging out, uh, she ordered me to go home. And so it was about 2 a.m. actually. I I snuck in downstairs to my basement bedroom, uh, which I was relegated to after I left home for college. And I turned the lights on and I screamed because there in the dark sitting waiting for me was my mom on my bed. (laughs) And she said, Peter, I've been praying for two days. And God has spoken to me. And He's told me that you are to go into the ministry. And now you have to go to seminary. So let's talk about grad school. Which seminary do you want to go to Harvard or Yale? <laughs> True story. I like this story because it, cam- it captures the intensity of love, it communicates a mom's desire for my good. It also speaks to the fallibility of human love and wraps it all together in a nice humorous tone. And that's what human love is like. And all of it exists to point to the perfect love which is only found in Christ. I want to conclude the sermon by reading from us from uh, select verses from Isaiah 53. It speaks of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Would you pray with me? God, today we uh, particularly um, pay attention to the suffering absorbing nature of your love for us and in that we are thankful for the moms that you have given to us in our life. Even if we have... Uh, a want, desire for moms, or we feel the absence of a mom's love, we know that as a world, as a people, we have uh, benefited from moms all over the world. They've contributed to uh, conveying the love of God in their unique way. And we honor them this day, and we worship you this day. God, we thank you for our moms, and we thank you for our Savior. Thank you for the time and process that is ahead of us, before us, because you paid for it. Save us. In Jesus' name, amen.